Hello and welcome to Contagious Thinking, the podcast from the MRC University of Glasgow Centre for Virus Research. I'm Shireen Ashraf, a postdoc at the CVR, and I'd like to introduce a very special guest to today's episode, Professor Anne Parmenberg, the 2019 Sir Michael Stoker Prize winner. The Stoker Prize is an annual lecture awarded to an influential virologist chosen by all members of the CVR who are not group leaders. Professor Parmenberg is a scientist at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today, we will listen to her inspirational journey through academia, her interest in viruses, and the importance of vaccines. So stay tuned. My name is Connor Bamford. I'm a postdoc in the CVR working on hepatitis C virus. I'm Mila, and I'm also a postdoc and working actually in many viruses screens. I'm Elio, I'm a postdoc, and I'm working in dengue and hepatitis C. So, yeah. so I'm Ann Palmenberg from the University of Wisconsin Institute for Molecular Virology. Okay, so maybe you could set the scene. So where were you born and where did you grow up? <laughs> a long time ago. <laughs> uh, I was born in Half Grace, Maryland, while my dad was in the Army, and I was raised in the New York area and did my undergraduate uh, work at St. Lawrence University uh, as a chemistry major. And uh, I knew I wanted to work on the chemistry of nucleic acids, so I did my PhD at University of Wisconsin uh, in the biochemistry department. And I had a major in biochemistry and a minor in genetics, because at that time, the field of molecular biology didn't exist. You sort of had to do them both. And to do biochemistry of genetics, of course, you worked on viruses, because that was the source of the material at that time. And uh, so I started just that was a great place to learn a little bit of virology, and I sort of stayed in that uh, arena. And I'm now back in uh, Wisconsin, and I've been for many years, mm-hmm. working on uh, RNA viruses, uh, primarily first uh, uh, bacteriophage, and then uh, the cardioviruses, the coronaviruses, and now rhinoviruses. But mm-hmm. I had learned all those rhinoviruses uh, when I was a grad student, because Roland Rickert was there then working on rhinos. So I sort of came full circle now. Closer. Yeah, yeah. So how did you, and when you first became interested in science, biology, and viruses? Uh, I've always been interested in science simply as a curiosity. Uh, you know, why is the sky blue? Why is the grass green? Why are my brothers genetically weird? You know? <laughs> and, and, and I knew that there was, you know, there was an underlying scientific explanation for that. And in high school, uh, when we learned about um, RNA to DNA to protein and that genetics, basic Mendelian genetics was the mechanism that underlay all of that, it was like, aha, this is the language of life here. And if you can understand how information is encoded in nucleic acid, it explains all of biology. So uh, I, I ended up, virology is the area in which you can do that because the genomes are so small. Mm-hmm. So you, you sort of start out figuring out how viruses work and how information is encoded at the nucleic acid level in viruses and then work up to larger things. So basically the, the information content of nucleic acids got me in high school and everything I've been doing since then. And virus, viruses, again, are just the manifestation, the easy manifestation of doing that because um, they throw away all the junk you don't need. Mm-hmm. So when you're looking at a gene, it's pared down to its maximum information content in the minimum amount of space. Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that uh, that's very information rich. So, But this is was the first time you get in touch with, uh, in your career with viruses, like in high school 
We didn't do viruses in high school, but when I went to the University of Wisconsin um, and worked with Paul Caseberg, uh, he was doing the biochemistry of genetic material. And the genetic material he was working on was bacteriophage cubeta okay. because you, you couldn't isolate. There was no cloning at that point. You didn't have recombinant engineering. If you wanted to put a genome in a tube, you had to grow a virus, and then you could extract out the RNA, and then you would have a homogeneous population of virus, of, of, of RNA, which you could then which you could then study, and everything we know about the genetic code was determined for exactly that reason because it was the only reason that you could um, uh, have uniform sequences uh, mm -hmm. in a tube. So uh, Paul worked on plant viruses, pro mosaic virus, and then later notovirus, but also the, uh, the small bacteriophage uh, cubeta. Okay, three thousand nucleic acids, three thousand bases. Yeah, and so, so I think there was a story I read in this autobiography article that you read about this early exposure to this polio vaccine plant. Oh, a, in my hometown, a, 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 yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. American Cyanamid is located in my hometown. So they were making the polio vaccine. They were producing the vaccine. They're producing the vaccine. At, uh, this would this would have been in the early fifties. Uh, and uh, the east coast of the U.S., of course, was a hotbed of, mm -hmm. of, of polio. And a number of the kids in my uh, in my class, you know, had polio and had withered limbs, and uh, some died from it. So polio was it was a big deal. And uh, American Cyanamid got some of their first contracts, first for the Salk and then Sabin. At the time, as a kid, I didn't know the difference. I know them well now. <laughs> but uh, they, they would just grow huge vats of stuff. Mm -hmm. And if it was going into the Salk vaccines, you didn't care how you grew it. You grew it and then uh, inactivated it. Mm -hmm. So nobody knew about biosafety. Uh, <laughs> the whole the whole idea was to make as much of this stuff as you possibly could, mm -hmm. you know, inactivate it and make uh, make the vaccines. And so I was aware of biotechnology because that uh, unit was, you know, in my hometown. Uh, and the thing, you, oh, you have to make medically make vaccines. Wow, this is a big deal. And uh, we, of course, were uh, immunized uh, right away because the place was in the hometown. Yeah. You know, it's it's a. Uh, if you, if you, I think the Russians do a, something similar, right? You vaccinate, ring vaccinate around <laughs> wherever your, wherever your plants are, <laughs> right? And so, so we got, uh, I, I remember as a kindergartner getting, getting those uh, vaccines and then later the, the Sabin vaccines on the little sugar cubes. And you talk about the three doses of vaccine, you get three times the vaccine and something else? What is well, you got Salk originally, which was a shot. Oh, okay. And the kids didn't like that because it was a shot. But the the Sabin vaccines are three doses or to three oral doses, and they came in little tiny vials. And to make the kids take them, uh, you can either break the vial open and put it on their tongue. But you would break the vial open, put it on a sugar cube, and then feed the kid the sugar cube. And and uh, you would get uh, two of those sugar cubes. But the be, because the the Live virus will cross-react with each other. You don't get if you give them all three at once. You don't get really good uh, protection. So you give them two of them and then come back later with the third. The polio type three oh, okay. will have uh, interference in, ter in terms of uh, developing the uh, uh, a good B cell response if you give it at the same time as the others. Why is that? Is it known why? Uh, yes, it's well. <laughs> I could I could go into the the uh, epitope distribution oh, right. on, okay. on doing so that. But okay. fundamentally, if you challenge an immune system with all of the epitopes simultaneously, 
it will pick and choose One the ones dumb. at which to, to make uh, B cell responses to. Okay. So if you wanted to make uh, type three, you have to go make type three, goddammit. it. Okay, that, and, that, yeah. and and not give it interference with others. Otherwise, you get a fantastic uh, type one response and a limited type two. But type three is like, mm, I forget. I don't have to do that one. Do I really have to do that one? I won't. Oh, okay. okay. So, so, uh, and, and that's a, a problem with uh, worldwide vaccine um, uh, immunization days that they have now worldwide in trying to mop up polio is that for a long time they had to distribute all three and you had to, you couldn't do that all in the same day. You'd have to come back to the same kids okay. multiple times. That's now right. that two is essentially gone, the worldwide vaccine uh, projects can do one and three at the same time. Yeah, so you can hit, speed. yeah, it, it helps. But again, you, you drip the liquid onto a sugar cube and mm. give it to a kid and they're, they're going to swallow it. <laughs> so do you think this early exposure to polio helped or sort of shaped your career or, or did you not really consider? Well, I learned that technology, polio was a big problem. I mean, this is also, this was also the, you know, nuclear time, right? We were more worried about being blown away by, you know, Russian nukes coming over and taking <laughs> out New York. Um, but that there was a disease that if you got a vaccine for, you didn't have to worry about paralytic polio. I mean, even as a six-year-old, you appreciate that the power of that technology, okay, that you can actually develop a vaccine that will have this kind of, uh, you know, nobody knows what pertussis is. Nobody knows what tetanus is. You know, that doesn't resonate with a kid. But we had kids in my class, you know, who, who were paralyzed. Mm -hmm. And you go, no, you take this vaccine, that won't happen. Mm -hmm. And we took the vaccine and that did not happen. It, it cut how, it out. How do you think that might be different now where there's maybe not such obvious exposure to to sort of deadly viruses? Well, we have anti-vax people, of mm -hmm. course. Mm -hmm. Okay. And uh, if, if you've ever seen someone in the hospital with uh, fulminant measles, um, this is this is a problem. We had uh, uh, Paul Alquist had a um, postdoc who came over from India who had not been vaccinated against uh, chickenpox, I think it was. And uh, managed to pick it up from kids, and and uh, in, in the U.S. we let for a long time we let kids get chickenpox early. In fact, you would encourage them to mm -hmm. get chickenpox, right? And uh, but this went into an adult, and it went into his lungs, and uh, he was hospitalized for eleven months, uh, unable to breathe, you know, on life support, because of uh, in an adult chickenpox has a completely different manifestation. And when you see things like this happen and you visit someone like that in the hospital, you know, and, and go, hey, you know, what can we do? You know, what what's happening? Can we help with your family yeah. or whatever? You recognize the value of of that vaccination, that either a mild infection as a kid or the vaccine and a simple shot would have prevented this. Uh, it's the same with the new, um, you know, um, papilloma vaccines. Mm -hmm. They cure cancer. Yeah. They cure cancer. How many of us grew up saying, I'm going to, you know, cure cancer and save the world? <laughs> right, yeah. right. You know, I, right. You know my it's life there, yeah. <laughs> purpose is to cure cancer and save the world. And this is a reality. You get mm -hmm. the shot, then that's it. Mm -hmm. uh, so these anti-vax people, I do not understand. Uh I do understand that nature will have its way, right, <laughs> okay, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it has a way of dealing with, you know, the galactically stupid. Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's yeah. it's called natural selection, yeah. <laughs> right? But but while yeah. you and your kids are getting sick, uh, 
more power to you. Uh, you're spreading it to people who, who are immunocompromised. Uh, I went through cancer and uh, I, you know, uh, did chemo and the rest of it. And there was a period of time there, about six months, where I had no immune system. Mm-hmm. And the entire concept of, you know, somebody with, who is spreading flu or spreading whatever, and uh, and you go to the cancer center, yeah. and there's, you know, hundreds of people there waiting for therapy who are completely immunocompromised. And it only takes one idiot who goes, I don't like the yeah. needle prick. My technician tells me this. I don't get flu shots. This is a virologist. I don't get flu <laughs> shots. I don't like the needle prick. And it's like, are you no. kidding me? <laughs> yeah. You know, go to a cancer ward and, and just see it, yeah. And see it. Yeah. And so so you did your PhD, but did you always want to be a scientist and then go on to establish your own lab or was it an easy choice? I didn't have it actually as an ambition. I it was sort of like a lot of women of my generation, it's like you do education and you do a job until such time as you find the right guy and then you get married and have kids and move off in a different direction. Mm-hmm. And But while you're waiting for all of that to happen, you might as well be doing something productive. Okay. Mm-hmm. So I was very glad to get out of high school and go to college because I'd, I'd outgrown high school and all of the things high school does. So going to school and learning new things was wonderful. That was the time of Vietnam. Nobody got married. Uh, and I was studying what I wanted to study. And it was pretty clear at the end of college, I wasn't going to be married. So I might as well move on and do the next thing. I could either go back home and work in a bank or I could go to grad school. Well, okay, let's go to grad school. That was like just the next logical mm-hmm. step. And in grad school, it was the same thing. I never met the guy who was worth not doing this for anymore. <laughs> you know, uh, and or the ones that I did meet were like, well, you can give all of this up and go, you know, yeah. cook, su- cu- cu- cook supper for me at night, yeah. you know, and it was like, uh, wait, no, wait, 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 let's stop and think about that. Okay. So it just, it just kept going. And I never had um, the opportunity where it was a better offer. Okay. Okay. But when I when I finished, of course, uh, there were no jobs for women. So you move sideways as a scientist because it was just well, that's what you can do. It's what you can do. Yeah. Okay. And and then that was that was fine until it wasn't fine anymore. <laughs> you know? So in that moment, was it easy for you to move as a PI as a principal investigator? No, no. Mm-hmm. I crawled in through back door and through the windows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely, because at Wisconsin in the late 70s through probably 94, uh, there were no women on the faculty, none. And there were no jobs created for women uh, in any capacity whatsoever. Um, You could get NIH grants, but you were not going to get a tenured faculty position. Um, Biochemistry hired um, Joanne Stubby because NIH threatened to withdraw all NIH support unless they had a female on the faculty. So they hired her, um, pulled her in from somewhere else, and then they said, we have our quota. So all other positions that came up, you would go in and say, well, okay, I, I don't know why I'm not qualified for this. Put in a resume. And the response was, to your face, uh, we've met our quota. Okay. 
So, uh, you know, you work, you work sideways and in parallel, and they gave me a small lab. I had research funding, and I just didn't care. They would let me do this. And it took me a long time to figure out, uh, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. And, you know, and, and sooner or later, you get uh, uppity, I guess is the word. So I started applying um, other places who were a little more enlightened. And uh, when the job offers start coming in, then and only then, do the people around you go, well, we didn't think you'd leave. All right. Gee, I think we can make this happen. All right. So, you know, you go back and say, well, things shouldn't have happened that way and they wouldn't happen that way now. But those were the opportunities that were available. And you sort of have to either stand up for yourself and, and be willing to, you know, I would have moved if things didn't change. But it took a while to get to that spot. Yes, as a follow-up, because uh, I read your autobiography and it goes as a complaint to the male protege that you oh. had to experience. Uh, do it's, you it's, feel it's that still, it still happens? It still works that way. Mm -hmm. It still works that way. Okay. But now at least they'll read the resumes of yes, women who apply. <laughs> okay. Uh, yeah, then I was very entertaining <laughs> what you're saying, but... Uh, now, if we can't go to your science career now, and then uh, why you started with viruses what, and why why picornoviruses and why MCV? Why you started? Uh, when I came back from Zurich, I started working with Roland Rueckert, and he was working on rhino and polio. And because that's where the money was and because that's where all the cachet was. And if you weren't working in polio, you were not an RNA virologist. It was just it was the HIV of its time. You know, you had to be in that. It, it, it had to, you know, you had to be working in that in that field. And but what he was doing was the capsids. And he was very interested in how um, things assemble and the outsides and what the immunogenicity is and how these interact with cells and how they bind receptors. And I had no interest in that whatsoever. It was like, it's, you're playing with a package, you know? Why, why do I care about the package? There's this fantastic genome on the inside with all this really cool stuff. It makes polymerases and it makes all of this stuff. And he says, yeah, but we, we, can't, we can't do that because we, we don't know how to make it translate. Okay, you take you take rhino or you take polio RNA, and you put it into in vitro systems, either heal the cells or whatever, and it will not make proteins. It simply won't do it. So there was no biochemical way to look at the other genes. Okay, and it turns out in retrospect that those were all type one irises. <laughs> so mm -hmm. you put them put them into a mouse system, and the ITFs aren't there, and it won't translate. But EMCV, which was just a curiosity of another percornavirus that happened to be in a lab, um, made an RNA that you could put into retics and it would make protein up the wazoo. I mean, huge amounts of protein. And it made all of the protein, the entire polyprotein, and every protein it made was active. You got complete cleavage. You got the polymerase. The thing would replicate in a retic extract. You could do all the biochemistry right there in a test tube. So it was like, why are we working this out in polio when here's the system? It's got exactly the same genes. And the answer was, it's not polio. <laughs> like, <laughs> really? <Yeah. laughs> okay. Maybe like we can do the biochemistry and then see how that applies to polio. Yeah. Yeah. And in retrospect, that turns out to be the way, the way that it worked. So I, 
I simply refused to work in a system that would not, that be, because of the cachet of working in it, it would not give you the biological answers. And here I could do the entire biochemistry of the cell, of the virus life cycle. Mm -hmm. Take it apart, put it together again, right? Clone it. Um, and it turns out, of course, that's because of that wonderful type 2 iris, which will, you know, work in distilled water and make protein. Um, for which we got patents and made a huge amount of money, but that, that was just that was secondary. So it was it was I I couldn't understand the mindset of the labs, and it's still there, to this day there are many mindset of polio labs, right? The polio labs, who wouldn't even work on Coxsackie if it's a better system for answering a biological question. So it just seemed to me you you had to move sideways into a system. Um, where you could ask the biological questions. And in doing so, at that time, there was no competition. There was nobody working in a virus that wasn't polio. It's like, really? Mm -hmm. <laughs> really? So, uh, where did the NCD come from, this, these original? The original ones, uh, uh, Mengo was one of the original ones, and they were isolated from either chimpanzees or uh, non-human primates from who had acute flaccid paralysis. So in the search for new polios, everything that got neurotropic disease, mice, anything, were swabbed for viruses that might be the new polio or might be another polio you didn't know about. So polio, polio was it, right? So you swabbed and swabbed and then you went, oh, damn, it's not a polio. Okay, put it in the freezer, right? <laughs> but um, these were... Um, Pocornaviruses that uh, induced uh, uh, flaccid paralysis, or in the case of EMCV, just death. Right, it's dead mouse, because um, they they went neurotropic, and in fact were far more pathogenic than polio. Mm -hmm. and, and you've got a built-in mouse model, <laughs> mm -hmm. right, for studying neurotropic disease. And right. this was not of the slightest interest to the polio people. <laughs> not of the slightest yeah. interest. It was like really right there, right? right there. All the biology, all the tools you need. Are, are sitting there. Mm -hmm. So it was, you could just, you know, walk down the street and just pick up the apples that had fallen. Mm -hmm. All of the good biological questions. Mm -hmm. What's the polymerase? What's the VPG? What's the protease? How do these things cleave? And, and of course, once you've mapped all of those in EMCV, you look at the sequence of polio and you say, oh, it works, by the way, the same way. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> okay, you got exactly the same gene, right? So uh, the polio people didn't start doing that until uh, a number of years later, after we discovered the iris, uh, Eckhart Wimmer came up to me at a meeting and he said, you're making all this protein. You can do all this biology. This is really great. It'd be wonderful if we could do that with polio. I said, yeah, <laughs> that'd be nice. If we took your iris and put it on polio, would it allow polio to be worked with in retics? I went, yeah, sure, that'll work. No problem whatsoever. So we, you know, Took, they took the iris and gave it to him at a meeting. He hooked it onto polio. And after that, they started making all this polio stuff. And at the same time we were doing that, we were also working with Charlie Rice, of course, on, on the hep C. Mm -hmm. And he said, I'm having terrible pro problems making hep C work. I said, put, put in the EMC iris. What is your problem? You know, and so all of his uh, uh, hepatitis stuff, the, the original bisestronics that he founded a company on, yep, yep. or because if it won't translate, hook mm -hmm. it up to EMCV. What mm -hmm. is your problem? Well, we can't do that. That's a mouse virus. Yeah. It was like, you want it to translate or what yeah. do you want it to do? Right? So you originally called it this cap-independent cap -independent translation enhancer. Yeah. And then but now it's known as the IRIS. Uh, that's because uh, Eckhart coined the term. Mm -hmm. After we had this little ceremony, and I transferred, I transferred to him samples of this. Okay, mm -hmm. and it worked in his hands too, which was also nice to know. Um, mm -hmm. But he says, "Oh, yeah, it's going internally." So, 
he's responsible for the word and we're responsible for the biology. Oh, but, yeah. <laughs> and and more important, I own all the patents. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and Charlie Rice's patents too, I will say. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, uh, is your lab still funded based on the money coming in from the from these patents or uh i have banked the money that came in from those patents so even without another grant i could run my lab for the next 15 years the dream situation yeah yeah yeah, so you were really i guess you're really biochemistry based yes and then you became interested in the the genomes and the questions you could answer with the emcv and you you find out the iris and then the poly c tract then you became more interested in these host pathogen interactions? Well, you I walk down the genome and the virus makes these funky little proteins. And you have to say, why is this here? Mm-hmm. Well, what are you doing? Okay. And uh, everybody knows what capsids do. Everybody knows what polymerases mm-hmm. do. Everybody knows what proteases do. But what do the funky little genes do? And it's the same, th- same thing with HCV or it's the same thing with HIV. Mm-hmm. Um, y- you can study the big guys and, and they're the workhorses, okay? But you put in a TAT and a NEF and a REV and the funky little ones. Those are the personalities of the viruses. So we got into virus-host interactions only because those are the funky little proteins that cardioviruses use. Mm-hmm. And you know, why do you have a leader protein and why should I care? Mm-hmm. Right. So you, you start you know, filling in the niches, if you will, to see what those other little proteins do. Okay. And that's how, we, that's how we got involved in that. Okay. Um, and of course, when you take these out of the MCV, then the virus doesn't cause disease or? Uh, you, you, well, you, it doesn't work very well. Um, coronaviruses grow in the cytoplasm and they like proteins that the host sequesters in the nucleus. So things like poly A binding proteins, PCBB2, and various other things that they need to make their irises translate. And those things are usually sequestered in the nucleus. But these are cytoplasmic viruses. They don't give a damn about a nucleus. I don't care about a nucleus either. But you, you have to get that stuff out. Mm-hmm. So it turns out that's actually quite easy to do. Either you make a protease that goes there, cleaves the nuclear pores. That's what rhinos do. And the nuclear pores open, and now all the floodgates open. Right? Mm-hmm. And all the good stuff in the nucleus whoosh, comes out in the cytoplasm. Uh, and all the bad stuff, which is, you know, virus wants to get rid of, whoosh, goes into the nucleus. Mm-hmm. So... You just have to open the floodgates and everything balances the way you want it to. Um, but EMCV doesn't have a second protease. Instead, it makes a leader protein. And the leader protein goes to the nuclear pore and it binds to RAN GTP. We had to figure this biochemistry out. I had no use for nuclear pore before this, right? So it binds to RAN GTP and uh, binds to CREM1, which is the exportant factor, because that's what it's supposed to do. And it picks up a... Um, uh, 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 kinase uh, in that complex, an activated kinase. But because the RAN can't hydrolyze in this complex, it gets stuck in the middle of the nuclear pore with an active kinase. And the active kinase says, well, as long as I'm sitting here, I might as well phosphorylate stuff. <laughs> okay. In other words, it's supposed to be, it's supposed to make a transit. And if you make a transit, you're not phosphorylating. Yeah. But if you get stuck in the middle of the pore, the kinase gets bored and it starts phosphorylating things. And it phosphorylates all the nuclear pore proteins. Okay. And when that happens, you put charges into a hydrophobic pocket and it basically shuts down the pore. So one 67-amino <coughs> acid protein bound to one RAN completely kills the nuclear pore. 
completely kills it. It's dead. And nothing can go in, nothing can go out. So nothing the cell can do. It can't send a signal to the nucleus to say, I'm infected. It yeah, can't make awful. mRNA. Okay. And if it could make the mRNA, it can't come back out again. Mm -hmm. And if it could come out, it can't translate because you've taken away all the EIF4G. So uh, that tiny little protein shuts down the whole damn cell. Mm -hmm. And you can't fight back. It's just an amazing system. And is this why the, cell, the, the EMCV kills a cell so quickly? EMCV kills a cell so quickly, one particle will kill a mouse in three days. Mm -hmm. Every cell in the brain lyses. And, and it, it, its preferred cell to infect is a macrophage, which is the last place on God's earth you would want to have an abortive infection. Okay, And you can do that because what's the, nucle what's the macrophage going to do? It can't turn on any cellular genes. In antiviral. So the virus is replicating happily in the cytoplasm of the macrophage. Microphage crosses the blood brain barrier, mm -hmm. drops Robert. in there, and you're dead. Okay. <laughs> okay. It's so, just, it's like, oh crap. Okay. So, how come we can work with, how come humans can work with the MCV in the lab and not accidentally kill themselves? You will accidentally kill yourself. Oh, right, okay. Which is why we so use the short poly C track viruses for anyone who wants to. <laughs> oh, right, okay. Yeah. <laughs> So, so these policy. This is where you deleted the policy. Delete policy track. Okay. Uh, have the, has there ever been an accidental? Um, yes. Oh, okay. They happen. Uh, people die from EMCV. Well, EMCV is not spread by aerosol. Mm -hmm. So EMCV is sensitive. It has to be taken orally, and it's sensitive to being coated with lipid, so it's more stable that way. So. You usually transmit EMCV by eating the brain of something that died of EMCV. Okay. So instead of spreading in the environment, mm -hmm. so from me to you to you to by a, via a sneeze, it's spread by a, a sick mouse is a slow mouse, and a slow mouse is an eaten mouse. And whoever eats it gets it. Okay. And the first thing an animal will do when it catches a slow mouse is eat the brain. In fact, mice eat other mouse brains. And you, you get then a dose of virus, which is coated with lipid, which is the perfect way to allow the virus. It's, it's got a biphasic pH uh, lability. So you need to be coated with lipid to get through the stomach. Okay. And so it's perfectly designed to be totally pathogenic, but not highly virulent. Yeah. Got that? Yeah. So, so if you eat a mouse brain... Then you get it. So elephants uh, get it in zoos. It's a EMCV is a big problem in zoos mm -hmm. because the uh, mice get sick and they carry the virus. And when a mouse dies in the grain bin, the elephant just snarfs it up. And the LD50 for an elephant is one mouse. Okay, because you're getting you're eating the brain. And if a mouse finds another mouse that's sick, the first thing they do is they they, they little teeth take off the top of the skull and they eat the brain. So mouse to mouse, but it's one to one transmission, not one to a population. Okay, so you can be highly pathogenic, but yeah. not highly virulent. It's yeah. magnificent. So the R0 is... It's a magnificent smaller. system. Okay. Yeah, yeah, it's a fascinating virus. And of course, then with this policy deleted... Well, you delete... You've got, the, a vaccine. you got a vaccine. Yeah. you got a vaccine. It goes into the, it goes into the macrophage. And uh, because it's lacking the policy, you actually get activation of PKR instead of inactivation of PKR. And when that happens, of course, you turn on the wrath of God immunologically, you know, mm -hmm. because of the interferon response. Yeah. And you go, which is, and the sensitivity of EMCV to interferon is legendary, yeah. which, is, which is why EMCV is the preferred virus when you're <coughs> testing for interferon because it's so friggin' sensitive. Yeah. So it has this entire mechanism built in it to turn off mm -hmm. interferon.
Okay. Yeah. But if you've pre-treated with interferon and upregulated those PKRs, the virus has no chance. Yeah, my whole postdoc project couldn't have been done without EMC being sensitive. Being sensitive. That's being good. the that, only virus. The that. only virus that's exquisitely sensitive. Yeah, that's incredible. Uh, okay. but, but the virus itself within a mouse has this magnificent system mm-hmm. for making sure that does not happen. Okay. But it will only go into a naive animal. Okay, right. that's that's not currently producing an interferon. If that PKR is preactivated, the virus has just got no choice. So it really is PKR. It's it's a it, it P, it's a PKR preactivation, which is if you if you treat cells with interferon, you upregulate PKR, mm-hmm. and it's like virus, virus, yeah. virus. So it's all about PKR. It's all about PKR, and we never worked out completely the mechanism by which the poly C track yeah. does that. But but the poly C track itself will actually bind PKRs which are inactivated. So PKRs have to self-activate. Mm-hmm. They have to dimerize and self-activate, and they do that by binding to RNA. And their favorite RNA to bind to is guess what? Poly C tracks. Mm-hmm. So uh, PKR in a naive cell will bind to that poly C track, and there's a stem loop that sits right next to that poly C. And I always thought, but could never prove it, that the viral protease sat there. And oh. so I think the 3C protease sits on that stem. And uh, as the PKRs come in and go, ooh, poly C, (laughs) okay, that they got inactivated. And if you truncate the poly C to a certain length, what you really do is um, make it shorter than the PKR binding site. And when that happens, then the PKR, instead of being inactivated by the protease, actually gets upregulated. Okay, by the presence of the RNA. So you've turned on the wrath of God, yeah, yeah. which makes it the, the world's best vaccine because yeah, yeah. It, it, it's not only detected and uncloaked, mm-hmm. but you get the wrath of the whole immune system coming down on this damn virus. Protective immunization for life. But then, of course, there's not much of a market for it. In, ex- in, in exotics, there is. Mm-hmm. We still get people oh. uh, who have outbreaks in their uh, captive primate colonies or in elephants, and they come to us and say, can you give a... We're not allowed to ship them virus. I say, can you... I can give you a cDNA, and they go, mm-hmm. what would I do with that? <laughs> you go, well, you could grow it in a virus. What's your problem? And they go, we don't have a clue. <laughs> oh, okay. And okay. then, I guess, outside of the MC, the other viruses have these poly tracts as well. Foot and mouth disease. So are you able to take? Are you able to remove it from that and then do the uh, same? Well, uh, working with FMDV is a BL five containment. Mm-hmm. So five. five. <laughs> but you work FMDV and and uh, smallpox, same category smallpox. But you say that you work with uh, Brazil. I went to Brazil. Yeah. Uh, I went to uh, uh, Argentina. Argentina. I've also I've also been to Brazil, yeah. but but that that, yeah. that that Brazil story is not in my autobiography. Yeah. That's a that's a much, that's a different story. <laughs> that's not one I necessarily want to go public. Oh well. Okay. <laughs> I went to Brazil. Okay, yeah. Brazil Argentina. Brazil was totally different. But yeah, I went to Argentina for the same uh, for the same reason. But we hadn't been doing poly C tracks then. Mm-hmm. We we were doing um, self assembly. Um, the retic system with EMCV works so well that you make all of the capsid proteins in a tube for, with retic extracts, and they are properly processed, and they will actually auto-assemble in the retic extract. And all of the protein, capsid protein that's made um, self-assembles into pentamers. So that in the retic extract alone, you can actually make viral pentamers, uh, which are immunologically identical to the to the capsids. So the FMDV people wanted to see if they could do that too and make a subunit vaccine uh, um, in in a similar manner. And it turns out it works. 
works perfectly, FMDV, because it, again, it's got a type 2 iris, mm-hmm. all right, and that iris plus reticular extracts or whatever cell-free system you want to use. You basically self-assemble into pentamers, completely cleaved, cool. processed pentamers. It's a great system. Okay. Can, can you name, out of all the uh, molecular biology stories, one favorite discovery? Uh, well, the most lucrative discovery, obviously, <laughs> was the irises. <laughs> I mean, that was um, the hardest story. Was probably that leader story. That that took a long time because I, I hadn't studied a lot of cell biology, and I, I had to go in places that I had to learn phosphorylation cascades. Like, oh God, you know, please, that's yeah, not a place you want to go. I had to learn uh, nuclear transport. I had to learn what RAN GTP does. Uh, and I, I had to learn what all of the different kinds of enzymes do. So that, that was probably the hardest story to take apart. But so it was very satisfying when we did it um, to work that one out. But I got to the end of that, and that was like the last of the proteins I ever wanted to do with cardioviruses. Um, we were doing uh, – the, the, the upshot of that is that as a control for that nuclear pore system of phosphorylation, we needed a control for you know things. Had you shut down nuclear transport, but not by phosphorylation. So I got into the rhinovirus protease uh, arena. I had stayed away from polio. I'd stayed away from you know the the enteros because everybody else was working on those. And uh, but but it had this little protease, the two A protease that cleaves nuclear pores as opposed to phosphorylating. And I needed a control for the leader experiments. So I went back to the rhinovirus stuff, which of course I knew by heart. I just hadn't worked on it. And we cloned those enzymes. And I was very surprised uh, to discover that each one of those 2A proteases from a different strain behave differently. They all cleave the nuclear pores differently. The leader is a leader is a leader. It all does the same thing, but here, which they should do if they're non-structural, right? But here were these little proteases. And you could tell they should be different because you just look at the sequences. And the sequences yeah. surrounding the active site were different. And you don't change sequences around active sites mm-hmm. <laughs> unless you got a real good reason for it. Mm-hmm. And we could throw them into this in vitro system and boom, the phenotypes fell out. You have different sequences because you have different phenotypes. So at that time, the rhinoces were coming out and they also had really weird phenotypes. So we had to clone them to make the proteases. And uh, that just happened to position us in exactly the right place with all the rhinovirus C reagents. We had the cDNAs, we had the ability to grow them, we had all the proteases, we had every gene cloned, we knew all the irises, we knew everything about them when rhino C became the big deal with asthma. And we were just just fortuitously positioned with every reagent possible to be able to dissect rhinovirus C. So uh, that work on rhino C sort of just fell out of the sky. I mean, it's as fast as we could pick up the pieces to do the experiments, the rhino C just evolved. So I keep doing it, not because of a real inherent interest in rhino C. It's just that it's such easy for us. We have the right people and the right reagents and the right uh, assays to just take that virus apart. And, And it just keeps yielding wonderful new insights. And we try to give the system to other people. You know, the pharmacos want to do rhino C. We go, here, here, do this. Uh, they can't grow the virus. They can't grow the cells. They can't do it. It's like, you know, you need that 25 years of, oh, yeah. hardcore, experience. <laughs> of hardcore experience that we just happen to have. So if we do the experiment, it works. You try to explain to somebody else how to do it and they go, oh, it ain't going to happen. All right. So uh, we keep doing the rhino C stuff now just because it's just, it's just, 
it, it's wonderful. Stuff keeps coming out of it, but it's not hard because we ended up with all the reagents just being in, in the right spot. Sometimes you're just in the right place with the right stuff. Um, and I'd done everything I wanted to do with cardios, uh, pretty much, you know. Uh, but being at Wisconsin with Jim Gern and all of his uh, clinical isolates on Rhino C and all of the clinical relevance also in the rhinos and asthma, this just seemed, it, it was just, it was a no brainer. I mean, I had the training. I knew all that stuff from Roland. Uh, I'd worked with Michael Rossman for years on structures. Um, so we just had the right cohort of materials and people and background and, uh, you know, I had an interest in structural biology. It, the, the pieces just all dovetailed. So it's like, who's going to do this if not me? So we just do it. Um, but in terms of interesting stuff, you know, it's whatever you're working on at the moment. Uh, and from other discoveries that you were not part of them, what do you think was the most important, one of the most important discoveries that, that were made at that time? Well, well, well the as of today, the CRISPR technologies are, are out there and they're influencing a lot of, you know, what, what we do. We'd like to be able to turn off genes, turn on genes uh, and, and see what's happening. That's that's not in my territory. Um, Cryo-EM has just revolutionized the way you can do things. Uh, I grew up doing crystallography with, you know, Michael Rossman and how much of a pain in the ass it was <laughs> to grow enough virus. When they were doing polio and rhino, they were growing 50 milligrams, milligrams of rhino, purified by cesium chloride gradients. Okay, now that's, I just described three postdocs for three years, okay, to, to do that. And with cryo, you just do these spreadings and they can be crappy as hell. They can have junk in them and membranes and all sorts of stuff. And you just do a spreading and if you can find the isolated particle, bing, your, your, your structure's done. It's like, whoa, just, just the power of being able to take things down to the mechanistic level because structure is mechanism mm -hmm. fundamentally uh, it, you know how does this exactly interact uh, we you can do the mappings you can do the biochemistry you can do the molecular biology but here's a structure boom there it is that's how you do it um, when we did the leader the revelation there was being able to do the nmr structures it's this funky little protein. You bind it to RAN, and, it, and this is where it goes. Oh, my goodness. If it goes there and binds this way, it must convert it to the GDP format. Sure enough, there you are. Okay, now we've got a mechanism. It locks it in that format. As a result, it can't come apart. It can't hydrolyze. can't hydrolyze. All you're going to do is sit there as a stationary platform for phosphorylation. So we could do all the mapping. We could do all the biochemistry. We could do all the mutagenesis. You could do all of that. But one structure puts it together. So... Being able to look at the coordinate files, regardless of who generates them, is um, that's that's the mechanism. So, I get satisfied at the mechanistic level, right? Yeah. To to be able to do that. Okay, so I think we'll move on to maybe some more advice. Oh, <laughs> so you've been a really ardent chaser pigeons. <laughs> so you've been a, an ardent champion of early career researchers and promoting gender parity in science. So why do you think this is important and why should it continue to be important? Uh, well, you have to go to the plus train meeting. They don't want me to talk about science. They want me to talk about women. Oh. <laughs> it's like, no, but we've got the structure of the receptor, you know, yeah. and uh, wait, no, no, no. Your postdoc can talk about that. You're going to talk about gender. Oh, <laughs> oh damn. Okay. Um, I got involved. Well, I came up the hard way and 
that's fine. And I think anyone coming up these days, male or female, you're going to inquire, you're going to hit a different set of mores in the, you know, uh, whether it's male, female, or whether it's minority, not minority, whether it's um, institutional or whether it's cultural or whatever, there's always going to be barriers. And anyone who expects there will never be barriers is kidding themselves. It's, it's as simple as that. So, all you can do is try to either eliminate the barriers or make them aware or, you know, encourage people to go through the barriers and say, if it's worth it to you, if the science burns and you do it, and one way or another, things are going to work out. So I've been to lots of meetings. I've organized lots of meetings. And um, there came a point sitting with, um, well, actually, I went to a herpes meeting for a whole other reason. It's not a meeting you really want to go to. If you're an RNA person, don't go to herpes meetings. Um, and Rob Kaleda said, um, we have problem in our field because it's the same people over and over and over. How do we get newbies coming in? And they were having a problem because youngsters don't want to go into the herpes field. And they said, why, why aren't new people going into herpes? And I said, well, because they have no, they have no future, right? Because you go to a meeting and it's the same people speaking all the time. How do you encourage youngsters to go in if they can't, don't have a probability of having visibility? So, Let's give them visibility. And we started doing that in ASV years ago. I've always been involved in ASV. And when you take youngsters and give them visibility at a major meeting, it can launch careers because they form collaborations. They move on. They get new perspective. They form new collaborators. They they see new things. Um, and it was having an effect there. So we sat down and wrote that paper mostly to document what was going on in the various fields. And we sort of knew what was going to come out of it, yeah. <laughs> but uh, it was it, it was eye opening to actually see what the trends were. Mm-hmm. Um, also, I was a leader in a number of those uh, symposia, and I wanted to know what the numbers were because if you're going to put together a program, you want to know how many times you know a guy from Scripps has spoken in the other meetings in the last five years. Where do you get that information? Where where does it exist? Well, you simply make up a table. Now you have that information. You go, yeah, well, you spoke the last five times. Maybe we'll skip the next one, right? And there was a lot of pushback on that. You know, well, you're breaking my record. Yeah. <laughs> the answer was, yeah. <laughs> That's kind of like, what have you done? What have you done, you know, that warrants this one? You know? And and uh, so those those attitudes sort of had to be broken up. And the way you do that, of course, is with data. So you simply line them all up and you say, here, here are the data and this is, this is what it shows. And what's been surprising about that is the impact that that had, that that transparency had. Because now organizers don't have an excuse to say, right, oh, that's, that's right, you were two years ago. Yeah, okay, so maybe maybe uh, – yeah, you just had a nature paper. Maybe that's worth it. Okay, but mm, – the nature paper you're going to talk about was eight years ago. So maybe we should rethink. And the parameters of bringing new people in um, was probably the most remarkable thing about that and the new blood that that brings mm-hmm. in. It turns out it doesn't matter if the new speakers are male or female. Um, you have, if just by bringing in new speakers and not picking from the old ones, the cohort of older speakers is dominated eight to one by males. So if you pick out of that pool, 
the odds are you're going to pick a male. It's just by statistics mm-hmm. from yeah. the number of speakers there. You pick new ones, and the odds are probably, well, actually, the recent odds are 21 to 19, if you really want the real numbers. So the, you're going to repopulate with new women mm-hmm. simply by picking new speakers. Mm-hmm. And that has just made an incredible, it seems intuitive, but it, it has made an incredible impact in in all of those, in all of those arenas. Um, I knew when I was coming up, I didn't give my first ASV talk, which is in, in our field the biggest that there is. And I had done irises, and I had done proteases, and I had done structures. Um, I had the cover of science three times, and I didn't give my first ASV talk until I was in my thirtieth year. Okay, and you have to ask why. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Okay. And if that's happening for me. Who else is, you know, and and you go to meetings and you sit there and you go, why is this person speaking? Don't I, didn't I hear this last year? You know, what were the criteria that were picked to do this? Mm-hmm. So if you ask that question and then you put the data there, the meetings become better because, you know, youngsters have fresh tales mm-hmm. to tell. So I guess you're you're continuously following up every year and seeing how it gets better. Yes, the, the spreadsheets keeping them up are, are absolutely trivial to do. Then they're posted online. I just yeah. finished re- updating all four of the spreadsheets, and in fact, that's the topic of my talk at at uh, Plustrand. Okay, is the, is it is Plustrand meeting one of the ones that you? Yes, an eye we, on, I yeah? do the we do the Plustrand, we do um, ASV. Gordon Research Conference on Cells and Viruses, mm-hmm. and also the Herpes Virus Workshop, um, because those are the ones that uh, Rob and I know mm-hmm. best. And they all look positive? Three of, well, the Gordon Conference does everything. Okay. ASV does everything. Okay. Mm-hmm. Herpes does herpes. Okay. Yeah. And and Plustrand is, is Plustrand. But, okay. but the, the, the trends over the last... Since we started doing spreadsheets and making that data available, um, uh, the regression curves have changed uh, enormously to the point that among the data I will show at, at Plustrand, instead of breaking the regression curves down by the entire history of the meeting, we now break them down by decades. And the slopes change by tenfold. Wow, right. Yeah, exactly. That's great. So, yeah, I mean, yeah. So it's just... Um, follow-up from the previous question. So I see that senior scientists have a big word on how the future can go, but can we younger scientists do something about that as well, actively, not just waiting to things to happen? Well, you can wait for somebody to open the door for you, (laughs) or you can open it yourself. Mm -hmm. Okay. And it's a problem that a lot of young women have, that we're sort of trained to wait for men to open the doors for us. <laughs> okay. Nice answer. And what, what kind of, what motivates you to do all of this? How do you keep that motivation going on every year? Every day. Right? What, what gets you up in the morning, I guess? Well, get, what gets me up in the morning is whether or not the structure is sitting in my inbox. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I am of a senior status now where nobody can hurt me okay and uh so i don't have to kowtow and and um, play the game quite the same way i'm allowed to open my mouth and say things that uh, whether or not there are toes being stepped on Mm -hmm. 
and uh, that took a long time to get to that spot. Okay. And who were and are your mentors, your old mentors? Well, a high school teacher who taught me about DNA, well, that was revolutionary, but I think we all have young, you know, people who, who did that. Professor Duffy? Uh, yes, Dr. <laughs> Dr. Duff, Dr. Duffy back in high school, um, who's deceased now, but she, we kept in we kept in touch for a long time. Um, but uh, Roland Rookert, obviously, and uh, Paul Caseberg, um, for very different reasons. Paul Caseberg didn't want a graduate student. He put me in a lab and said, "Here, do something useful," and let me do it without you know looking over my shoulder and pounding on me okay and uh, under conditions like that you discover that that you either love it or you hate it or that you can become creative or or not mm-hmm. and it was like it was like he gave me the freedom to make mistakes and then but he could recognize the good stuff when it was there too hey this is working but that's not why don't you move in this direction and i appreciated that uh, very much Uh, other mentors will say, you mean the four experiments we discussed yesterday you haven't done yet? You know, so in other words, there can be too much hands-on and there can be not enough hands-on. And I find that's true. I find that lesson of giving people the freedom that they can handle um, to be very important with my students too. Some need that hands-on. They will stand there in front of a bench and just go, oh, what do I do? Okay. And others... We'll go. What can I do? Right, yeah, yeah. and you have to be able to recognize that and and do it. So so he, Paul Caseberg was very hands off. Let me do whatever, and Roland Rookert was very hands on, and uh, tell me what you're doing. Tell me why you're doing it. Let's sit down and discuss it. But if you you could have that discussion, which would um, focus what you're doing and make you explain it, but he would never say no. Don't do that. He would say, "I want you to do this, and if you also do that, that's great." So, but you got to be able to explain what you're doing, mm-hmm. and you also then whatever you were doing had to come back to Roland and justify it, which meant you had to storytell. This is what I'm doing. This is why I'm doing it. This is what I learned by doing it. This is what I'm going to do next, and that had to be logical and it had to be, you know, airtight. Mm-hmm. So, uh, one taught me discipline, I guess. And the other one taught me freedom, and diametrically different philosophies from from which mm-hmm. you know make you into a scientist. Because um, a common thing youngsters do when they write their first grant is go, "I have this wonderful idea. Just give me money, and I will do something wonderful." Okay, and the NIH people will say, "Wonderful? Define wonderful, right?" And that discipline of Being able to take it from ground level to I'm going to do X, Y, and Z, and this is why you should care, right? That discipline to be able to do that is what allows you to sell your science because somebody's going to pay for this stuff, and you need that discipline as well as the creativity. And the, the they're two sides of the same coin. And uh, I'd say Caseberg taught me one, and and Rooker taught me the other, and and that's that that they were they were very very important. And then, of course, anybody else in the in the field, you know, who you go and listen to a seminar, and they go, "You should do this," you know, or or Michael Rossman going, "You put it in an ice bucket, and we'll do the structure." So, okay, that that sounds like really good advice. But and would that be your one bit of advice for early career researchers? This discipline and creativity. Early, early career researchers have to figure out whether the science motivates them. Is it you want a career or you want a job? Okay. Anybody can get a job. We can get you a job doing anything. 
but you want a career, you're going to go through a lot of crap that doesn't seem to make sense in the beginning for the objective in the end, which is to be a PI and have that power to think up new things and, and, and do it. Um, so you, you got to figure out if a science, if you wake up in the morning and want to know if the results are in, if, if that doesn't happen to you, you're, you know, go, go work at a bank. Okay. Or, or go work for Big Farm. <laughs> you, <know. laughs> you can go home at five o'clock. Yeah. If going home at five o'clock is important, uh, then, you know, then it, it, that's a, a fine thing. But it, 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 nobody can tell you whether that's important to you or not. Right? So in line with this, imagine you couldn't be a scientist. What could you be? You made your way, but I would write, and and in fact, I'm doing that now. I uh, um, the day I get back from this meeting, I'm enrolled in a five day creative writing workshop and retreat to to um, write both fiction and nonfiction. I figure as I phase out of science, I may want to um, do more writing. Okay, either either memoirs or science stories or fiction or nonfiction. So. Uh, uh, this stuff comes into my head, and and uh, I'm very good at technical writing. You know, writing papers. I know how to do that, but uh, creative stuff doesn't have limits on it. And that's like yeah, the, no the talk. It's yeah. the ultimate freedom. You can you can make this character do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. It's it's positively amazing. So I'm any, actually looking forward to that. Do you have any favorite writer? Do you have any favorite, favorite writers? Or? Oh, uh, uh David Cornwall. I the spy books that he writes are like are like brain candy to me. His style of writing and and uh, uh, his language is just phenomenal. But I read everything. Uh, you know, everything on the New York bestsellers. I, 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 it's it's another thing scientists should do is read, because you get your vocabulary from that. There's only so many so many paragraphs you can start with in order to. It's like, oh, dear God. <laughs> and in fact, that shouldn't ever be in your vocabulary to start with. But uh, a, a lot of youngsters don't write, and they don't write because they don't read, and because they spend all their time on their little devices, which will not teach you a vocabulary. Um, so uh, reading, liter literature is creative. Uh, old literature, history, everything, anything that's in there is going to teach you new vocabulary, new ways of looking at things, um, new perspectives uh, that you haven't seen before. So... Uh, Reading is the best way to learn to write, uh, and, and writing is a craft of our tool of our of our profession. Um, many young scientists have not ever taken a creative writing course, and that's like or public speaking, uh, because that's the social sciences, right? Uh, but those skill sets are what will allow you to sell your science to uh, the rest of the world, and and also in telling the story to people who are not in your field. You have to be able to distill it down and focus it. You have to understand yourself what the plot is. Mm -hmm. And if you can do that, and it's <clears throat> cruxed, it also informs you what the next step is, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so every time you have to deconstruct and reconstruct what you're doing, it will tell you where's the, where's the hole, where's the next thing, next most important thing that has to be done. So, so you know, Read, read, read history, read anything. Yeah. TV shows won't do it for you. No, and nor, nor are those little texty things, but just read books. Okay, we're about to finish because we're running out of time. And I just wanted to 
as two, two things. The first, you are here because you are going to you are going to receive later today the Sir Michael Stoker Prize. Uh, why do you agree to accept uh, to come to to CBR to Glasgow and accept that prize? I hadn't been to Glasgow before. I am very much aware of the wonderful virology that goes on here, and I thought it would be a great time to come and, and meet the unit here, which is sort of the parallel to what we do uh, in, in Madison. And uh, I, I said I would do it because I was going to the Plus Train meeting anyway, and wouldn't it be cool to come through Glasgow and meet all the wonderful virologists that are here? And uh, so a, a prize on top of that is just a cherry on the cherry on the top of the sundae. And then in your autobiography, uh, you have a quote, well, I want to quote now that uh, a sentence that struck me. Science is a beautiful fact, but it seems like your career is, is was not fact. It's you, hard work, discipline, and a lot of skill. Why do you mean science is a beautiful fact? Uh because at times when there were crossroads or decisions that had to be made, which had very great consequences, go to graduate school, which graduate school, which laboratory, what direction, uh, get a job, don't get a job, drop out. The options that were facing me seemed in almost every case to have only one viable path. In other words, the small stuff dropped out. And it was like, this is the next most obvious thing to do. Do it. And then you do it. And then something else would happen. So you don't have to worry today what you're going to be doing 20 years from now. You just need to know what's in front of you today or tomorrow and make that choice. And that will lead you one step further. And then another step will appear and another step will appear. And for me, it seemed that the steps that appeared were fate. Uh, in in that, you know, the right man never walked into my life. <laughs> well, not at the right time, all right? Um, or, you know, uh, the options for schools or the options for what the projects would be um, were just there. Choose this, choose this. And, uh, okay, we'll go there. So it, it wasn't that there was so many things to pick from. It was like, here are your choices right here. It's, it was distilled down. Um, and you just go step by step, stone by stone, and, and ended up, you know, pretty much where I was. Um, so something's guiding that, you know. Okay, thank you very much. It was amazing. Yeah, to yeah. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Connor, Elihu, and Mila for hosting this fantastic episode. And a very special thank you to Professor Parmenberg for her time and insight into how academia and science is changing and her extremely important message about vaccines. You can find all our previous content over at cvrblog.myportfolio.com. You can get in touch with us at cvrcontagiousthinking at gmail.com or tweet us at cvrblog. Next week, we bring you more virology and discuss herpes viruses with Professor Paul Griffiths from University College London. Thank you all for listening and come back for more.